0: said the name right, but we'll find out here shortly. From Evergreen State Reptiles with us tonight. I'm pretty excited about this episode because Shane and I have been trading snakes back and forth and working together over the past year. So this is going to be a fun one. Uh, Once again, because Matt and I are two of the busiest human beings on planet Earth, we're a little bit out of our cycle or rotation. uh, But we're doing everything we can to get back on it. Uh, So to give you an update about what we've been doing over the past couple weeks... Um, is to be blunt, a lot. So I went to Costa Rica for the university the last week of April into the first week of May. Uh, and I went down there because we're working with um, a, a group down there, and we're my, myself and another professor are serving as consultants for the development of a field station, which hopefully the West Liberty is going to be using into the future. So there, there's going to be a whole lot of tropical herping in my future, which is pretty wonderful, I'm not going to lie. But uh, that was the trip that got canceled, if you follow our podcast, and it ended up hitting where I had to go down there for a week. Then I came home straight into finals week, was home less than a week, and then went right back down to Costa Rica for another week. So it's been an absolutely nutty month, but, you know, I can't complain. I went to Costa Rica twice in three weeks, so, yeah. know. There you go. As far as herping down there is concerned, first time in my life I went somewhere where there were snakes everywhere and I just didn't care. I was chasing sloths and anteaters and all kinds of crazy stuff. Chasing's too strong a word. I was respecting their space and looking at them from a distance. So there we go. We'll leave it at that. Uh, I saw two snakes while I was down there. That was it. A uh, ton of frogs. Fell in love with toads. Um, species of snakes, for those interested. I got a species of coronius, the machete snakes, um, which was pretty cool. They're faster than a racer. So I saw a blur. I don't know which species I, I encountered. And then I got the holy grail of venomous snakes. Um, Fertil- I saw my first Fertilance at a distance. Wasn't on top of it, but that was pretty pretty awesome. That is an imposing beast, and that is all I'm going to say about that. Uh, other things that I you know got to experience while I was down there, um, I got to go to Reptilandia, which is Quetzal Dwyer's passion project down there. And um, I can't say enough good things about Reptilandia. Uh, the enclosures were epic. That's best reptile facility I've ever been to. And I've been to a lot of reptile facilities because for my job with the herpetoculture stuff I do at the university, um, I try to go to as many of those as possible. So if you're ever down in that neck of the woods, you need to check that out. And I will fully admit, after seeing that facility... I am pumped to see what him and Ari are making in Texas. So this is going to be pretty freaking cool. And then on the breeding side of things for me, um, I was walking students through false water cobras hatching. Um, Of course, all the eggs hit when I was out of the country, but we have good people at West Liberty. So we've got eggs in the incubator. I think we're well over 200, maybe up to 300, somewhere between two and 300 now. Um, and some pretty cool clutches, drops, nothing overly exciting, but for me, first time. So I have a clutch of um, what was formerly called Lampropeltis getula stick to steps. outer banks, king snakes on the ground, which is pretty cool. That's a special snake to me, given that I spent my summers on the banks growing up. Uh, and today um, uh, we have a black pine pear that was donated to the school with Jen Joseph, who we had on the show. And uh, we got six perfect eggs out of our female today. So that's pretty cool. And then a lot of things I'm still waiting on uh, to drop. So I thought that this was going to be a bit of a wasted year. And it turns out that more things were gravid than I thought. So uh, and other than that, it's field season. And thank the dear Lord, sweet baby Jesus up above. School's done. No more classes. No more grading. I just get to be a field biologist with my grad students and undergrads now, and this is my favorite time of year. Um, Eggs are being laid, eggs are hatching, and I'm running around outside, so it doesn't get any better than that. So that's kind of my update, quick update. Um, Matt, what's up with you?
1: Oh, man. Been still crazy busy with work. Um, Been traveling with one of our mobile labs here and there with some of the guys that are on the team, and... Off of that, I mean, going into the hobby aspect of it, you know, this is one of my favorite times of years, too, especially not only for the projects that I have at my house of personal nature, but having kind of created some joint projects with people like Stan Grumbach, uh, Clint Bartley, you know, it's fun to experience and create and, you know, converse amongst those projects and keepers because it kind of reinstills the passion for the hobby, um, you know, kind of thinking about what you're going to be pairing, what has happened, what clutches are on the ground. I mean, Clint is just killing it with some of the black rat snake morphs that we've been working with over the last couple of years. And it's cool also to see a lot of people um, that have purchased animals over the years really starting to get their first clutches, too. So and they also having like the questions that pop up from that time to, you know, incubation questions or pairing aspects. So it kind of reinstills a lot of the, the keeping aspect too. also kind of challenges me too as well to think, is this really the right way that I've always been doing it? Or is there a different way to do it? Um, but, you know, in terms of off of that, you know, keeping up with the, the travel schedule, as well as the nature of finding eggs to when you come <laughs> home, um, sometimes those surprise clutches that maybe sitting waiting for you when you come home can be a little bit overwhelming at times (laughs) when you get back at nine o'clock and you're like going down cleaning cages, um, but also pulling eggs and clutches from it. So it comes into that time balance that we talked about too, where this year I kind of just selectively bred for the animals that I was personally looking for, for certain projects. But you know, that being said, I mean, I think I'm over 500 eggs in the incubator already for the year (laughs) Um, with, with a mix of just different rat snake species, corn snakes, and then some of the different, uh, colubroids that I've been working with, um, really excited to this year, pair up, uh, the red and black snakes again, too, as Mm -hmm. well. Um, so hopefully produce some more captives for the hobby too, as well, and kind of create a stable population for hobbyists going forward. But aside from all that, just staying afloat.
0: Staying afloat.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sure, it's pretty
0: easy to stay afloat with 500 future little mouths to feed. (laughs) Yeah, right. Good Lord. No, you impress me every episode, man. Um, Yeah, yeah. I I forgot to. One other announcement I have, it's a pretty big deal. Um, The book. I got it all to Russ. Uh, I got all the photographs to Russ, over 200 of them. I got all the figure headings to Russ, all the chapters to Russ, and um, while I was in Costa Rica, Russ got me a draft of one of the chapters laid out with photographs and the figures. And um, oh Lord, is all I have to say. Uh, it's it's one thing to be writing this thing and have in your mind's eye what the book's going to look like, and then you actually get delivered like the tangible item. Uh, that was a pretty cool moment that I had in my little cabina down in the middle of nowhere. So, um, but yeah, book was, we're, we're cooking with gas and I really hope that it will be out by the end of the year. Um, I'm doing everything I can to make that happen. So that's an update on that project, which is something I'm pretty excited about. So that being said, anything else you got to add, Matt?
1: No, I think we should uh, just jump right in and introduce our guest. Okay.
0: So, our guest tonight is Shane ah, Woldridge with Evergreen State Reptiles. Um, Shane's in Washington, and he's definitely a Colubrid guy. Um, Those of you who follow him on Instagram or Facebook are more than aware of the many amazing memes he's produced Uh, But in addition to amazing memes, he produces some pretty badass snakes. So um, Shane and I, like I said, go back a little bit at least last year when I ended up with more water cobras than I necessarily wanted and called them. And we basically did a trade. And those of you who follow the show know that I got into king snakes and the initial round of king snakes that started the newfound obsession came from Shane. So um, that being said, he keeps all kinds of critters. We're going to go over those animals uh here in a minute but with that being said how you doing man welcome to colubrid and Clubroid radio
2: thank you for having me i'm doing good um i'm very appreciative to be on here
0: all right happy to hear it <laughs> okay well we are happy to have you so we we ask everybody this question um so i'll, I'll start with the questions tonight and just you know in a nutshell uh How'd you get into this? You always been into reptiles. You get into it when, you know, later on in life, what's your, where's your start?
2: Oh, my start is, I I mean, I probably three, four, five years old, constantly uh, catching snakes and begging my parents for a pet snake. And they finally broke down and got a box turtles, you know, had uh, Mm -hmm. an iguana probably in like sixth grade for a long time. And then in high school, just getting more involved with the hobby. My mom was around snakes because she would take me, you know, and uh, then she started letting me get snakes and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's I'm a firm believer that for most people in the hobby, it's like it's part of their their makeup, their DNA. I mean, like, it's like it was just a draw, you know what I mean? Like from the very beginning.
0: No, no, exactly what you're saying. I want to explore something that you said there, though, which is kind of interesting. So you said your mom was around snakes. Did, did your mom support this?
2: No, I'm saying she she didn't like snakes in the beginning. Well, it's not like she didn't like them. She said, you know, it's just it's new to her. So we did the box turtles, mm-hmm. then the iguana. And then, I don't know, like eighth grade, she started taking me to reptile shows and kind of being having some experience seeing, you know, hey, they're not so bad or whatever. Gotcha. And, So you know, then corn snake, speckled king snake, California king snake, pair, some balls, yeah. That's Mm kind of where we headed.
0: Ah, that's awesome. So, with you know, you obviously are are into it during high school. Um, After high school, what happens then?
2: So I I left for I played college football and. You know, no snakes in the dorms, but I snuck a Dumeril's Boa with me and I had it with me the whole time. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I I always had to have something, you know, and it was in California, Mm -hmm. about an hour um, west of Reno. So I spent pretty much. Every day I finished my uh, football practice and jump in my truck and head up to this place called four corners. And it was just huge rocks and catch rattlesnakes every day. I mean, I loved it, but yeah, I had a uh, boa with me uh, all the way through college, came home and I got really into rosy boas. Cause they kind of hit all the marks for a consumer, but they've yep. just never really taken off. You know, you got the size, which is perfect all the color combinations. And if you give them as babies, they're very Hannibal. If you don't give them as babies, not so Hannibal. They're, they, they, <laughs> when they bite, they don't let go. But I, I had 22 adult pairs at one point.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So, so when did you make the transition into, to Colubrids and doing this as a potential business?
2: So, well, I mean, I would, Colubrids are always my thing, even as a kid. I mean, i caught a lot of garter snakes i mean that's what's available here we have rubber bows and garter snakes mm-hmm. you know but we do have the california mountain king snake in washington on the uh, in the gorge but nevertheless mm-hmm. um just the just the behavior you know like you know they move and yeah you know, it's just i don't know i just it just that's what got me i, I like the keeled scales i always wanted um, a leucistic pine snake since i was probably 10 years old still don't have one but um, keeled scales are you know, very much like a rattlesnake. And uh, I think a keeled scale animal is just pretty much the most gorgeous snake. But, I mean, yeah. obviously, I like all colubrids. But, um, yeah, colubrids is just – just, I mean – and I'll be honest with you. So, I mean, I, I sold my rosy collection, and uh, I got a good amount of money for them, bought my house. We put the down payment on the house with quite a bit of that money. Um, Had to, you know, kind of scale back on the reptiles, working full time, more like 60, 70 hours a week, you know, night shift, this, that, and the other. Just want to get life started, you know. Um, yep. I went to, uh, had reptiles the whole time. I had a black pine for a while there. It was a nasty one, too, I'll tell you what. But a friend of mine <laughs> invited me. He's kind of like you, you know, meet online. Doesn't take long to see who you can trust or not uh, Mike Mm Roscoe. So he invited me to come stay with him in San Diego where he lives. And I went to the, uh, reptile show down there. Now it's a big deal down there. Super show. Awesome show. But I saw like how everybody was doing it and I saw how everybody's doing it at home. And I thought, I mean, why am I not all the way into this thing? This is what I love. Like you should spend what you, your life doing what you love. And I thought like how I would do it compared to how people that were already successful doing it. And, you know, you've seen my booth. I'm, I'm kind of a showman when it comes to that, you know, I want to every time make it better and better. And I just said, I can do this and I can do it to a level that, that I, I think is impressive as far as the view and as well as the healthy animals. And uh, it kind of took off from there. You know, that was 2016. I think I've ended my first show on my own in high school. I, sat on the corner of people's booths and sold some cow kings I produced and stuff. <laughs> I, I produced nice. my first clutch of snakes when I was seventeen. So cool. Cali kings? Yeah, just ban- just a pair of bandit I got off uh the Columbian our local newspaper. I think it was like a hundred bucks. <laughs> and uh <laughs> knocked it out.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting. I mean, just how you kind of brought up Mike. Um, you know, Mike's doing this now full-time and has kind of a several different aspects of his business too, you know, from the wholesale to the pet store to all fronts of it. But I I think, you know, kind of your your story here too is kind of something that is common as we mature and and go through the adult phase of our life where sometimes we, we come and go out of the hobby. And I think it's kind of interesting too, from a story perspective, how people do go through some different phases, but always come back to the animals that they love and have always wanted to keep. Um, You know, that being said though, you know, I know we've talked about, you know, the respective, some of the colubrids ahead, you know, but I mean, having kind of explored your Instagram page and things like that, I mean, you keep a bunch of stuff. Um, you mind going into some of the different species of which you keep?
2: Yeah, sorry. I was texting my kids upstairs making a lot of noise. I had to come in the house from <laughs> the garage because the uh, internet connection was bad. Um, so That's life. Ago, I mean, I got um, bulls, I've got pines, I've got gophers, I've got kings, I've got Honduran milks. I got away from the Nelson Eye, not a big fan. I do have a nice pair of uh, hypo-possible-het um, T-positive negative or T Pueblins, and they laid this year. I'm super stoked about it. I like to raise everything from babies. When I first started, I bought a bunch of adults. It's like the worst choice you could ever make. I got hog nose, and I've got my dry mark on. I've got my muserana. I've got my false waters, and... Got my Florida Kings, my Cal Kings. I got one pair of corn left. I, I just stuck with the palmettos. I got some annery palmettos. I really like them. I had a lot of corns. I, got, I just uh, like, like we were talking about in the green room, so to speak, kind of just moving up and changing some direction. I really want to go big with the gophers and the bulls and stuff. And dry mark on. So um, three different species of mark, dry mark on. And the hognose, I don't know if I said that already, and the tricolor hognose. I think that pretty much covers the colubrids. I definitely, produce, I definitely produce a lot more other ones, though. I, I produced uh, Arizona Mountain Kings. I've produced um, Kunashir Rats, um, Gray Banded Kings. Um, the list goes on. I think I've produced 38 different species since 2016 which I'm pretty proud of that. That's, you know, quite a bit. So,
0: that that's a good number. <laughs> yeah. Congrats on that. Do you keep anything beyond Caliburs for those who might be interested? Yeah, well, I mean,
2: uh <laughs> I hope this is not not friendly, but be honest with you, um I came out swinging in 2016 and that's just kind of how I am about everything. It's kind of the pro wrestler gimmick inside me. You know, I'm on a, I want to. I want to better, be better than I was yesterday. But I don't want to be second best at anyone. That's kind of like we were talking about the show booth. You know, I want it to look crisp, and clean. Mm-hmm. But uh, everybody saw the success with the Cluebricks because it's a hot market. China started sucking up all the animals, and our value, the values on you know MBKs, another species I breed, goes through the roof, and some other stuff that was selling. You know, speckled kings and different things were thirty bucks a piece you know, in 2014 and Hong Kong starts sucking up all the snakes and South Korea gets involved in Japan. And all of a sudden the value goes up. It's great for everybody. It's great for the animals too, because unfortunately when something's cheaper, it, you know, you spend some money, you're going to protect your investment. So that's a good thing too. And it's a good thing for us in the industry as well, because to make a living out of it, reinvest and buy more. But um, what I was going off was People saw that success because I was one of the only colubrid breeders of probably those original 30, 40 vendors in the Pacific Northwest. They saw that success, and, and you know, I, I, hey, I love competition. Like, everybody breed them, but they didn't buy them from me. They went and bought them from everybody else. And I thought, well, that's kind of funky. So uh, my attitude, I said, okay, you're going to play that game, ball breeders. I'm going to buy a bunch of balls. I'm going to breed the crap out of them. Better than yours and sell them for a better deal, you know. That's so you know, that's why I got into balls. So, there's my long story mm-hmm. to that. But, like I said, it's it's kind of like you know, I just feel like those people like they should have supported me if they wanted to get into colubrids, but they kind of went anywhere they could to get stuff, you know. And I just invested in some diamond carpet pythons, or not they're not carpets, but well, I don't you guys know the scientific stuff, I, I invested in a trio of diamonds. I load up, yeah, and I really love nice. them. I've always wanted them, so I got those going, and that's it: balls and di- those diamonds, and then all the balls. And uh, of course, I have a ton of monitor lizards, but that's you know another question to be asked. So yeah, that's it. Uh, the diamonds, I'm pretty passionate about them. I've always loved them. I love the Stardust line of diamonds, and I wanted an mm-hmm. original stock from the San Diego Zoo. You know, because that's that's the good stuff. And I I want, I want a lineage five years ago. I wouldn't have cared about the lineage of any animal. Like I didn't really know, you know, just like I was more into morphs when now I'm more into locality specific. That's why like, I love the scissors crossings. I love the Marina Del Rey muds. I think uh, Mm -hmm. locality specific is almost kind of where the hobby's heading. People are kind of realizing, okay, that was gone because everybody wanted albino and hypo. And all of a sudden you kind of see these beautiful natural occurring designs for lack of a better word and they're not so available so i kind of reinvested in some of that stuff too because you know the high whites are great but that's that's you know fancy basically and and i like the locality stuff
1: awesome yeah the hard part that comes sometimes i think with locality specific animals is because i've seen it with the mandarins is all of a sudden you start to see locality animals, and then people that were producing animals for ten plus years now ought to, all of a sudden have locality specific animals <laughs> because the way that marketing yeah happens. that's true. Uh, so it, it is one of those things where you know we've talked about it in the past, but I mean you you definitely have you know some traits that carry over to the locality. But I think one of the more important parts, especially with locality animals or locality um, phases, is really getting a a true understanding of the area of which the animals are found. And so this way you get almost appreciation or you could be sent to a place, right? You know, whether it's in China or Europe or um, Mexico, you know, it's kind of cool to really get a better understanding of where those animals are found.
2: Absolutely. 100%.
1: Hundred percent. I, I got yeah. most of my so,
2: locality specific stuff directly through like Jerry Hartley. He was really big into locality specific. I wanted you know, I wanted to get it from the right source and stuff too, so that was that was cool. And then Tony Lanzi's, where I got a lot of my bull gophers, and then Jason Nelson, you know, they got all that you can trust the name, you know what I mean? They earned their respect. Yeah, right. Speaking of respect, Matt, I wanna say we never spoke or even messaged, but Mike Roscoe has dropped your name plenty. We talk every day and he really (laughs) has a lot of respect for you.
1: Uh, He's a good dude, man. I talked to him a couple weeks ago. So that's a, it's a small community in a small world. So, yeah. Excellent. So
0: we kind of danced around it and you alluded to it a little bit, but let's just hit this nail right on the head. Um, You're obviously a Colubrid guy that has not been determined. So we'll just ask the question. Why colubrids? What about um, them?
2: Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if we touched on it before the recording or not, but really, like I said, the keeled scales really got me going on the colubrids because I like rattlesnakes. I definitely got caught with a rattlesnake under my bed when I was in high school. But I bought a, I believe it was a captive bred peach. Not, I don't remember what species and whatever peaches, man, this thing was beautiful. My mom you know she allowed the corns and the kings and she, she for whatever reason she was I mean I kept a clean room. I don't know what she was doing under my bed, but she pulled out a tub and had a little master lock on it and saw that rattlesnake and I came down all right I came home from school and it was on the counter and uh, I said, oh boy <laughs>
0: <laughs> there we go
2: But yeah, I guess pels yeah. is just um you know you can see the wheels turning in their in their head when you look in their eyes, especially the dry mark on and the bulls. The hog knows their eyes are kind of, whoa, whoa, you know, they're just anything. Yeah. And king snakes, too. They're pretty silly. But just interaction, you know, the movement. And I don't know. It's just, you know, ball pythons sit, you know, carpet pythons, they move a little more. Um, it's like a retic compared to a burn. You know what I mean? A burn can't be mm-hmm. heavy and sit. Retic's going to move around and explore. But I just, I guess that it, with the bigger, uh, specifically, Moose Serana, False Water, Dry mark on, just you look in those eyes and they're looking at you. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the other stuff, not so much, but, you know, they do. But it's just, I, I just feel a better connection, I suppose. I guess I really, can't answer, I, I, get that. I really can't answer, like, why that over another snake, you know, but, um, other than keeled scales hooks me, dry mark on is definitely my passion, but I do love moles, you know, and I, and I love hots too. But I, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't, now I'm like so far away from it. I'm kind of nervous when I'm around them. But when I was a kid, I wasn't, you know, when I was in my teens and twenties, but you can't have them here. So, and then with kids, you know, kids in the house, I wouldn't have them anyway, but I still do love rattlesnakes, you know, I love rattlesnakes. So So one
1: of the things we we always kind of touch or review with our guests is really kind of their approach to keeping or their style to keeping, whether it be cages, um, heating sources, um, racks, and just kind of, you know, why you actually pursue that type of keeping style. Um, Because I think it just kind of helps to broadly identify, you know, there's more than one way. And it really helps when, you know, we have people like yourself that have large collections to kind of explain why they use those types of um, traits in their animals.
2: So, I mean, I, I, I can really go on a run with this and, and make a big, uh, a big portion of the podcast about this. So, um, basically, I mean, I keep mine in racks. They're all fairly large racks, you know. Um, the false waters and the dry mark on, I'd like to get the, the five or six foot racks for them. Right now, I have them in the 80s, 16s. Um, I get them out quite a bit. But even then, I mean, I tell people all the time, they're like, oh, why do you have them? That's so terrible. Well, why do they produce eggs? You know, if it's so bad. You know what I mean? Like an animal that's not happy, not healthy, is not going to produce for you. I truly believe that. Um, the way I keep my room now is I put a mini split up and I set it at 78 and i do use heat individually on my adults with the heat panels most of my racks are ars and i and i don't overheat stuff you know like in the beginning 10 years ago people were keeping like hognose at 92 like are you kidding me like i don't keep them over 84 i mean maybe 86 in the hot spot but um you don't have to keep snakes at 90 92 um uh, I, as far as the heating goes, that mini split is a game changer. If you don't have, a, if you have a reptile room, you don't have a mini split, you're missing out. I mean, I I, I took a chance this year. I was pretty nervous last year. I produced sixty three clutches. Five of those were ball clutches. The other fifty eight were were uh, clubrid, and there was probably ten or fifteen tricolor in that because you know they produce clutch after clutch <laughs> after clutch. Yeah. This year I'm at one snake. This year I'm at fifty three <laughs> clutches with no tricolors and I moved probably 20 adult snakes since last year. Um, I put my stuff down in October, October 10th. I shut the mini split off. I waited two weeks, three weeks, shut the mini split off. Um, the dry mark on, I kept the way I keep them for winter, which is a 80 day, 16 hours at 60. You know, that's how I keep them false waters. I keep pretty similar, not so cold at night, but, um, nevertheless um and i brought everything up january 5th and i started pairing january 10th and i mean i'm so far ahead of everybody i mean my snakes are hatching you know i got over 500 eggs and uh where i live in washington i can do that you know some people like if you're in california central california socal you definitely can't put your stuff down in october it's just gonna be too warm but with a mini split you can control so much and then this year i did some new things with uh lighting, I put everything on digital timers from a cell phone app. And if the lights go off and I need to go out there, I I put a headlamp on. I do not turn the light back on. So I, I gave them, everything had seven hours of light in the winter. I wanted a seasonal change because even like, you know, somewhere where it doesn't get cold, they still have a light cycle. And that, I think that really changed um, production and the health of the snake in general, so, I mean, I don't know if I went out of course of what you're asking me, but um you know, right now it's fourteen hours on during the day. in the winter, I change it to seven, and that really helped me with the Hondurans. I was struggling with the Hondurans. I wasn't producing them, and the light cycle I determined is really the precursor for producing Hondurans. You know I always say tell people you know talking trash, you know, I could produce snakes in a in a cement bunker, you know but I need a light switch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the cooling is, is important mostly for the males from what I've determined. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Um, if the males don't get cold okay. enough, especially if the hot with the hog nose, the females will still cycle, but personally believe the males definitely need that, that cooling cycle. Um, I okay, get what other, what else do you got? What'd I miss anything as well, far as your question?
0: Real quick. For those who don't, who don't know explain what a mini split is
2: A mini split is a um, it's a unit that it's on the, the component on the inside of the wall and then the, the unit is on the outside but like mine has directional fan I, I run 24/7 at like 50 percent but you set the temp to 78 and if it's 100 degrees outside like my garage it'll heat up to 88. Well with the mini split it's not gonna it'll cool to 78 and uh, you know come well like March you know it was cold here this year in March we're we're in the low 50s or high 40s that that room was 78 you know the garage door the mini split and it's so super efficient my energy bill didn't go up by like 30 40 bucks using that mini split I mean it's heat, heating and cooling the whole garage but I mean you can turn it off and just use uh, the fan which is great too to move the air. But uh, I put it lower on the wall because I heat rises I, and my garage is like 15 feet tall. So I put it at about six foot, five and a half, six foot. And uh, many splits are just amazing. I've seen other people say it on Instagram and YouTube as well. Like if you want, I mean, really, I don't need to heat anything. I don't need, when I bought all those ARS, I kind of wasted money buying the heat panels because, other than the balls, everything can be controlled by that mini-split, you know. I don't heat my hatchling racks. They sit at 78, 80 with the mini-split, even the hog hognose, and they eat awesome, never have any problems. That's what I do. I just pretty much everything's between 78 and 80. And uh, but yeah, the mini splits a game changer for the reptile industry, and I would think it'd be great for if you're producing feeders. You know, I mean, what are rats best at? Seventy-five set at seventy-five. You know, whatever.
0: So dry marking—that seems to be your snake. Um, you, you know, you're, you mentioned it's your favorite genus. Uh, so what about dry marking? Makes it so.
2: Well, I mean, the size of the animal itself. The just the behavior of the animal altogether, the size, the, the, you know, just the pattern, the color, the, the behavior, but even more so the challenge of breeding them. I mean, some people have it down. I definitely don't have it down. I'm working on it. Um, like this year I got six good eggs from one. She laid 18 and then the other one laid 14, no good eggs. It's the pairing. It's a courtship, you know? And, uh, I feel like after this year, I'll get it right.
0: Yeah, you got to love those species that you don't knock it out of the park right away. Um, and you got to tinker and figure it out. Like that that was me with Japanese rat snakes. I don't know what the hell, but it's my favorite rat snake. And I went four years with beautiful slug clutches. And last year, I finally figured it out. And like all the eggs I've produced, those were probably among my top 10 favorite makes because it yeah. was such a pain in the ass to get them <laughs> so
2: yeah i mean i what i didn't realize is dry mark breed during the cool, cool season and they breed the entire time so you really should be one to one ratio because if you switch a male to another female you're breaking that um, bonding basically but the males at that are very aggressive breeders if you do not pair a male and there's a female near him he'll wear his face right off It's uh, pretty wild. Never happened to me, but I've seen it start to happen, and I'm like, holy cow, it's time to pair. Um, My first clutch, didn't get anything last year. My first clutch was 2019. I bought the pair from a guy who bought the male from John Michael and the female from John West. The male was modeled. The female was a straight line. I I have the text message and everything and, and the paperwork shows male and female from those two guys. Okay. So I pair them and I put the nest box in with the female. Well, basically the male was the female and the female was the male. So <laughs> the, the male laid the egg. I didn't sex them. Cause I'm like, Oh, these came from John West and John Michael.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, I opened the tub and those eggs were in there for probably three or four days on paper. And I was like, Oh, great. Ah. You know, I, I ended up getting half of them to hatch, but I incubated them at 81, like the rest of my clubrids, and they all had kinks. So that was my first experience. My second experience was 2020. I was feeling confident, had a beautiful nest box in it for the female. I knew she was gravid. Um, it was mid-July. I reached out to Tony Lanzi, and he said he would, he would call his friend, uh, the black, black pearl, John Michael, and he said, never heard of a dry mark on laying in July. It's not It's not gonna lay. So I kind of let my guard down. I thought, okay, these guys know what they're talking about. The dang snake laid the eggs under the nest box in the wood shavings, and I didn't find them for a week. because so I just kept looking at that nest box. And dry mark on are really well known for not laying their eggs in a nest box. I mean, they'll just do whatever the heck they want. So those all went bad and they were all fertile last year. I got nothing this year. I got one infertile clutch and one half fertile clutch. So they're incubating at 75.5. And I hope I have at least six perfect
0: babies. (laughs) Yeah. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Are those. So let's say you get six perfect little babies. Um, are those little babies going to stay at Shane's house or are those 100% <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. For the record, all those Japanese anymore. rat snakes stayed at Zach's house. So <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. So then as far as, uh, uh, so which dry market do you keep? Um,
2: I've got the Molinas, which is the black tail and I prefer the clean line. The modeled is nice, but I like the clean line. And then I have the Rubidus, which are the Mexican species of indigo. And that's it for now. Well, I have a pair of Unicolor that I bought from my good friend uh, Armando. He's uh, on Instagram. He's a great dry on breeder they're a year a year old pair but i'm gonna i'm gonna get away from the unicolors and i want to buy some texas indigos and i'm gonna stay away from the easterns i'm not interested in the state line permit yada 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 and, and really a lot of people have bought them lately and i don't see a lot of people working with the rubidus at least not the line i have the molinus you know five years ago it was a six hundred dollar snake last year it was fifteen hundred bucks and uh it's not even that it's more value. It's the, the more value holds um, kind of like a. It's hard to explain. It's not like, oh, I want to make more money. It's just the fact that it's more value kind of brings a different conversation when you're selling it or yeah. when you're discussing with a keeper. I mean, nobody's going to come and throw $1,500 down and then forget it in their car. You know what I mean? Like, exactly they've like already that. done their homework and, and there's just, you know, I like those discussions. Mm
0: hmm. So, a- along those lines, do you, with your with your care and your keeping, do you do anything different with the three di- with the three? I don't want to say subspecies because the unicolors and the blacktails are technically the same, but the,
2: technically the same. Yeah. Nothing's different. Nothing's different. Yeah,
0: the the but your and and let's just say the unicolor slash blacktails. Any difference in keeping personality? <laughs> Same snake, different paint job. What's your yeah?
2: I would say, I would say that for the most part. Same snake, different paint job. Uh, black-tailed cribos, it's interesting because you know, you would think they need a lot of humidity if you put them on like cocoa, Uh they get get sores all over them. Yeah, they cannot, they they have to be dry, and uh, it's odd because you know, it's got to be fairly humid, you know, Central America where they're coming from, but. And same thing, uh, well, I mean, the Rubidus is – Mexico has some, obviously, humid uh, parts to it. But humidity and wetness are two different things. So, totally
0: different. 100%. Um,
2: I use a very fine mister, and I mist them a couple times a week. But that's not wet. It almost comes out like a cloud. And uh, if you were to put – like I'm telling you, if you put them on a wet bedding, man, you, they get, they get um, blisters. And I get them right under their chin mostly, you know, and around their mouth. But you just all you got to do is like, oh, made a mistake, put them on aspen, and three days later it's gone. But, um, I, I, you know, when I first got them, I straight put them on cypress, and within five days, oh, what's going on here, you know? Yeah, so,
1: so, so what what about feeding these guys? I mean, you know, we a lot of people. You know, as we kind of talked about, I mean, Dramacon have somewhat of a reputation for their painting ability after the fact. Um, See,
2: people say that, but I'm, I don't get the paint the cage thing. I mean, I, I don't, but yeah, that's a big deal. And I've seen it a couple of times, but I don't feed chicks to start with, because, mm-hmm. you know, you give a chick to anything that's going to paint the cage because they're just sacks of goo. But I do uh, mainly rats. And I do um, quail. Quail is different than a chick, in my opinion. But I don't get the paint the cage thing. And I use uh, sandy chips. I use the coarse sandy chips. And I got a little shovel. and I scoop it out, you know.
0: -hmm.
2: Excuse me. Every time a snake sheds, I try to change the bend altogether. That's kind of like my little notification. When a snake sheds
0: Hmm.
2: and I'm doing waters, the bend gets changed all the way. Other than that, it's spot cleaning, you know, but i tell you what, you'll end up, I mean, you'll either end up saving money by not dumping so much bedding out. If you use that as a, as a um, notification, or you'll end up with a cleaner cage and not doing a whole rack at once. You know, you go out there every day and you got a hundred snakes, you know, you might find three sheds. Well, that'll take 15 minutes. You know what I mean? I like that. So when I'm, when I, yeah, it's really nice. When I'm doing water changes, I, I, I got a bucket next to me and, I dump the water in there, and if the deli cup's funky, I drop it. But if it's not, I'll wipe it with a paper towel and fill it up. And if it's funky, I'll dump the water out, and then I'll use the deli cup to scoop poop, you know? But, and I do waters every four days. I try to, I, I do not allow it to go a week because I yeah. just, we all know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Four days is probably even pushing it. But, um, yeah, anyway, when the snake sheds, I change the tub all the way regardless like i mean it's, it's it needs it by that time because you know you can't see the pee until you move that bed in and you see what's kind of stuck to the tub but
0: huh? so w- when we were talking earlier you had mentioned um that your rubidus were kind of they, their origin was interesting do you want to kind of go into where yours from yeah, yeah. and, and and what you have yeah. going on there
2: <laughs> so i wanted rubidus so i talked to michael about it and he's, man, the rubidus, you know, they're, they're, they're almost like a dwarf species, what's available. They're short and stocky, and some of these adults aren't getting over four feet, maybe five, and, you know, that's not, that's not good lineage. And, uh, you know, that was like four years ago. And... Uh, I met a guy three hours east of me in Washington. His was name Brian Whitehead. I met him on Fauna. I still use Fauna Classifieds. I love Fauna. Yes. I look at it every day. It's mm-hmm. the OG site. I'm not a big, I mean, Morph Mark Market's great, but I feel like that's like shopping on Target.com. <laughs> fauna, I feel like it's more like
0: uh, it's what great. I was raised on, you know? It's going to the jungle.
2: <laughs> yeah. I love and, it. And, you know, as long as somebody's got sales or posts, you know? Mm-hmm. you're good but if you start messing around with somebody that's on their second post you're going to get in trouble you'll lose <laughs> so if you stick with the OG's on fauna you're you're good to go anyway so I met Brian Whitehead his name is his business is High Desert Herbs. he's in Kennewick Washington he was selling some monitors and I wanted to get some Kimberly Rocks and we got to talking and he's got oh I still have this Rubidus. you know I got eight animals and I'm like what all right You know, I'm not big on letting people come to my house. I keep a nice house, and I just don't need company. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I said, hey, man, I said, here's the deal. I'm a straight shooter. I'm a good dude. Nice house. Nice vehicles. You know, some some reptile people are, you know, Craigslist people. But anyway, so he's like, all right, you know, come on out. So I go out, I mean, he's got a beautiful collection. He's got blue tree monitors. He's produced with them, green trees. He produces with them constantly. Kimberly rocks, Ackies, and he's got yellowtails, and he's got Eastern Indigos and he's got the Rubidus. So we're sitting there looking at these babies and they're well started. I mean, they're awesome. And I said, you know, how big are the adults? And he's like, Oh, you know, he goes and pulls out. I don't remember. It was a male or female. Regardless, both of them were seven feet. And I said, Oh, okay. I'll take a trio. (laughs) And, uh, I figure what I'll do is I'll find a male another male from someone else and then use the related males kind of a backup because I mm-hmm. I don't really like with kings and stuff I don't mind the relation breeding corns and kings but with a dry mark on knowing that they're stunted adults and in, in, in places I think it'd probably be best to outcross that but I like again when's the next time you're going to find a 7 foot adult mm-hmm. it's apparently it's hard so but anyway, we became pretty good friends. I bought Kimberly Rocks from him. He bought False Waters from me. I bought the uh, Rubidus, and man, I just I just love him. That's it's so cool. smart.
0: <sighs> so, keeping then, um, well, well, let's we're, we're kind of jumping around your two taxa, but that's fine. So, where the the the, the blacktails you got? How were they? Well started? Were they small? um yeah i got them
2: on i got them on fauna they were a year and a half old the dude was moving he was in texas he he, he uh texted me a year and a half later and offered me twice what i bought them for he wanted them back <laughs> um they were just it was just a great opportunity they they weren't adults yet by any means they were three and a half feet probably okay four feet and... so
0: what growth rate did you experience with them because i i i, I for the university I wanted black tails. I thought that would be a fun snake. And um, in the initial wave of snakes that I bought for our collection at school, I ended up picking up a pair of yellow, captive-born yellow tails, which we still have. And they produce. They're the only dry market that I've produced. Uh, and then I, I had a small army is the best way to explain it, of blacktail tail And um, make a very, very long story short, I ended up getting a male that was like ideal, perfect specimen, seven foot Seven and a half feet, perfect body condition. And as everybody knows that listens to any podcast I've been on, that was one of the casualties of the crypto when it hit the collection back in 2018, which was like tragic. Uh, My coworker, she's only cried over one animal dying, and it was that Blacktail Cribo um, because he was just an amazing snake. But he's like literally the only Blacktail Cribo I have experience with that was... Yeah, the kind of what everybody wishes them to be because we purchased a lot of young animals and in growing them up they like some of them would grow and then they would reach a certain point and then they ended up getting this really weird phenotype where they would get the thickness of that seven foot male but they would max out at about four feet and then we take them to the vet and they have spine ossification so their vertebrae are Kind of linking up, and they got underdeveloped jaws, and they ended up turning into these just, for lack of a better word, genetic nightmares. So I'm I'm really curious with when it comes to like blacktail crebos, like what, it, what what it's like to buy a young one and actually have it grow up into an adult. What that looks like?
2: Well, mine were, um, like I said, three and a half feet. My rubidus yeah. were six months old. It, like like we touched on earlier, it's really the incubation, I think, is, yeah. is the issue with the dry mark on. Um, Ricky Wheeler out of Texas is kind of a dry mark on kingpin. Shout out to Ricky. Um, he set me straight on incubation, you know, 75, 76 at the highest. And they'll hatch at 80, 81, 82. And I had one hatch without kinks, and it was going for a good four months, and then it, it flipped. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone, I mean, so you can definitely hatch them at a higher temperature without kinks. And I'm sure that was the case. I think, you know, I think the inbreeding for for whatever reason, the dry mark on it suffers over, you know, other animals, balls and Kings and corns. Um, I see with hognose too, though. I feel like the inbreeding with hogs oh, yeah. is, uh, is, is pretty detrimental to the species but I mean, it's already not—it's already a dumb species to begin with. They're they're probably brand as the size of a seed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think that's probably what you dealt with there. You probably had a bad line, some inbreeding, pro- improper incubation. You know, I can't speak for the guy, and but like I said, I made the mistake. Hey, colubrid, my my big incubators at eighty-one It hatches everything. I'm throwing it in there, and then all of a sudden, oh, okay, well. I should have known better because these snakes are so much different than everything else. I should have looked more into it, but I, I yeah. bet you that's what your, your thing was well, well sure. it's, a mixture of that.
0: Well, one oh. of the cool things about dry is with the Eastern Indigo's being federally listed. They're a snake that we actually have a lot of data on their biology and natural history. And what's really cool about that species, which genetically is very similar to all the others. Oh, well it's, it's similar to the Texas and it's similar to the blacktail, um, is that the males have these enormous home ranges, and the, those home ranges overlap multiple females, very similar to what mammals do. So you you have a and, and then male territories overlap other male territories. So with Drymarkin, you've got a natural breeding system to promote heterozygosity. So other snakes, when you do telemetry studies, they don't do that. So, I've always thought about that when it comes to the black tales. But then I'm, I'm also thinking you know, you got a devil's advocate, null hypothesis, it's everything. Am I like overthinking this thing? Um, well, you kind
2: of brought up a point that, that kind of makes me question what I was saying the extended courtship.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: because if the uh, males overlapping multiple females, that courtship, you know, maybe it's just more timing of the female. Yeah. Well, not when, such when an he, extended
0: courtship. When he finds a girl, he's not gonna leave her till he's inseminated her. But in the wild, he's gonna you know, there's a he can pick up the scent trail of another female and off he goes. Whereas in human care, yeah, you may not have another female. And I think they're aware of the number of females around to a certain extent. So I I, I totally yeah. agree with you on the extended courtship. But anyway, that's just something I've always wondered about with these, these snakes. So,
2: I, I mean, I figure it's going to be something I work with until I'm done, and I nice. got a lot to learn about <laughs> them.
0: Yeah. So, you mentioned that you're keeping them in racks. Uh, how do you go about that? Like you said, ARS racks or giant visions? Or, yeah, I've gotten the there. <laughs>
2: We've got them in the eighty sixteen ARS. It's the one with the window, mm-hmm. and they're big tubs. And but they're not that big. That being said, they don't bite me. They eat amazingly, and they um, they do breed. Obviously, just I'm the one that's screwing that up—the timing part of it. But I would like to get them in like six foot by four foot by you know eighteen, mm-hmm. or even I wouldn't even honestly. I, I followed the dry mark on, uh, or excuse me, the indigo research center on Instagram. It's probably my favorite account. And they have, I saw that they have like uh, sliding glass doors, like walking yep. into their enclosures. And man, if I ever get a facility or a <laughs> shop on property, I will absolutely do that because. Um, even for me, not just for them mostly, but even for me, just, to, yeah. just be able to sit there and watch, you know, and interact. I mean, that's just a, just an amazing uh, facility they have. But I mean, that being said, uh, they do just fine you know, keep them clean, keep them fed, keep fresh water. And, and I get them out often and I let them move around and they don't go crazy. They don't try to take off. They don't bite. And, yeah, you know, I think they do just fine.
1: Yeah, the rubidus, you know, I, I have uh, two pairs of them, and I really enjoy them. I think they're one of the more intellectual, curious snakes, but also they're, they just have such a pleasant demeanor, too, as well, for such a large snake.
2: Agreed. I mean, I've never just gotten bit by one to get bit. I mean, they're too smart for that. It's, like, weird. You know, like King said, you can hold it, and all of a sudden, it does the whole nose down onto your skin, and then opens its mouth.
0: Yep. The
2: the dry mark on it just like they're aware of you, and they're aware of everything else around you, and, and they know the difference between food, and they know the difference between I'm I'm here to explore and look around. But yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, if I honestly, I hope I'm not taking too much talking time. You're not. But if keep going, I've actually just just recently spoke about this to a few friends. My goal would be probably in the next five years to have the dwarf monitors, the Kimberleys, the Tristus, the Ackies, and my Flavies. They're not dwarfs, but they're a smaller sanguana. Um, my dry Marcon, my bulls, my gophers, and my hognose, and the diamonds, and really just really work those, really hold back, the best of the best, you know, what's produced and just continue to grow that and focus and hone in. Um, Cause I mean, like you've seen my, my Instagram, I've produced every, all sorts of crazy stuff. All, you know, like it's, it's all colubrid. So it works for me. But um, like I was talking earlier, if I don't, if I'm not walking around and all of a sudden it pops in my head, I want to look at that snake. And I don't go out there and open that tub. I really don't want to have that snake. I want it to be like in the back of my head. I want, I want to look at my snakes. You know what I mean? Like yep. I don't do that with the corns, you know? I mean, the pop, the palmettos, unfortunately, you know, looks are a lot of life and I like the way they look. I'll go look at them all the time. But if I like, you know, I, I just gave a friend of mine, a ghost Tesra female. She's, she's two years produced. So she's about three and a half years old and he's a corn snake guy and he loves corns. I said, Hey, I got a female, man. I want you to have it she's a great producer. She's beautiful, but I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't go out of my way to go look at that snake. You know what I mean? And and I could have kept it and fed it and it cost me 50 bucks a year to feed it and make, you know, 600 bucks off the babies or 800 or whatever. But I just didn't want to do that anymore. You know what I mean? I really want to focus on what I appreciate, what I enjoy and what gets my blood pumping. So, um, Hognose, unfortunately, is one of those species, and they just bother me as much as I like them, though.
0: <laughs> well, we can segue to hogs. So you obviously like them because they're the the snake that's on your um, logo.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so let's. It sounds like you might have a little bit of a complicated relationship with our good friend Heterodon. <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
2: there's a scientific name, I know. Yeah, not really. Um, the hognose are just you know, they're they're I mean, I I guess I'm not very PC like most people, but they're just a stupid snake, you know, (laughs) they're just dumb. I mean, they'll bite themselves. They'll bite the tub. They'll, you know, I don't know. It's like, uh, and what I was talking about earlier when people always want to get in the hobby and get in the hobby right now, I want to produce snakes tomorrow. And, and I, and when I was getting into the hobby again, and the depth that I'm in, Hognos weren't such a big deal. Right now they're a big mm-hmm. deal. They're a hot commodity. And there is adults available. But why yeah. is somebody selling an adult female? One, it doesn't produce well. Two, it's old. <clears throat> Excuse me. Three, it's been probably ran out of water two dozen times in its life and its kidneys suck. I bought a lot of adults because I didn't know any better, you know? No one's there to say, hey, take your time, start from a yearling or babies. It'll pay off in the long run. No one also told me to hold anything back. So when I'm producing all these animals <laughs> for year one, year two, I'm not holding anything back. And uh, that was a big mistake. But I bought a lot of adults and, and they looked aged, but I was able to produce with them because, you know, I took the time to learn right out of the gate. A lot of study hours. I worked graveyard at the time and I, all I did was read. Mm-hmm. And I produced fairly well with, I'm guessing, a lot of animals that people weren't producing with. But... What I'm getting at is uh, they when they're a certain age and or when you move adult hognose, they do not reacclimate. If I sent you one from the west coast to the east coast and it was five years old, it's a fifty fifty shot if that thing's gonna produce and or not look like a piece of jerky in two months. I mean and it's just the hognose are just they're just they're just not the brightest, but I love their face. I love I love the morse. Um, I love the customers. My Hognose customers are my favorite people. Nice. And they're super passionate about Hognose. And I can't stand the word noodle, but it goes along <laughs> with Hognose. <Yeah. laughs> when people say it to me, I say, excuse me, what are you talking about? Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I love the Hognose. I mean, and I like the people I've met, you know, Fathom Hogs, John and Mitchell. They're two of my best friends. I, Mitchell's more of a best friend, John. I call him Uncle John. He's, mm-hmm. but, I mean hognose has brought me uh, a lot of great friends because the hot the hognose market it's not at the tip right now i mean there's a there's a long way to go here you know this yeah. thing won't go out for 10 years and and i want to make the cool stuff too and i want to you know I, I can't wait to see what my friends make i don't get jealous of somebody doing you know a world's first i'll say okay well i will want to buy some some hats you know or whatever you know i'll put money towards it so i like to see what everybody's doing and and i definitely that's you know i think hognose is really one of the five animals probably three animals that solely shot the reptile market to the the where it's at and i think you know like we talked about china hong kong specifically south korea japan um that also was a big precursor with you know youtube instagram snapchat you know it's all been very positive for the hobby also people's standards of keeping has gone through the roof because they see how other people do it and people that show that stuff they're very proud of what they have you know and how they keep it and i think people you know it's just it's just broadened the uh the knowledge of keeping animals specifically but it's also pushed the market you know like when i did the show in april it was more people than I'd ever met at a show that was their first show, you know, kids, two, three kids. And like, Oh yeah, we watch this on YouTube. And, and then all of a sudden the promoter locally is an amazing promoter. He he really puts, shells the money out for promoting, you know, billboards, signs, TVs, whatever radio ads goes on the morning news. But, People are like, we didn't even know this exists, you know, and then they're buying their first snake. But I'm just saying the mar- the the market, the industry, the hobby, whatever you want to call it, is it's not even close to, to the top. It's I mean, we we got so far to go here. And hognose, I think, is probably the, one of the driving main species. Ball pythons will always be responsible for carrying us to the length that we're at. And I do love balls for that. And I do love a lot of ball pythons. I, I like a lot of the recessive genes. But... I tease about them, like you brought up.
0: <laughs> yeah. So with hogs, you obviously have produced a ton of them. Um, I had a banner year with hogs last year, and this year it's kind of a crap year, but that's all right. Uh, and and it, But it made me think, like, what the hell's different between last year and this year? Because these are the same animals, same enclosures, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. you know, I'm kind of, like, writing a book on hog nose, too, so there's that. So what, what's your style of keeping with them? Cause it, like.
2: so I like to keep them in smaller enclosures. I like to keep them at more of an ambient than a cool and a hot. Huh. My determination for that is I've watched how well my babies do yeah. at ambient. Mm-hmm. No issues with digestion. They blow up. I do cool everything. If I have babies in October, they're going down. And I've noticed that the longevity of the animal, if it's an, a North American species, really does need the bermation or hibernation. People, I guess, people are trying to get rid, rid of the word brumation. I grew up on the word bermation, but um, I've taken king snakes and took these two and put them down. These two females and these two females didn't. And they're down for three and a half months. And they're by, by the next summer, they're still the same size. And then the two snakes that I put down for the winter from the very beginning, double clutch, and the other two don't. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I, I mean, I just, I don't know. I kind of went off base of what you're asking. But I keep hognose in smaller tubs. I keep them clean because hognose, like many snakes or all snakes, have the scent gland. You've seen the bulb bud on hognose.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: they get that swollen scent gland i've determined personally that the reason it swells is because the cage is dirty they smell themselves they don't express their scent gland you keep the cage clean fresh bedding more often they resent their cage and you don't get a stuffed up scent gland once that thing swells it's swollen and and there's no going back you can express it all you want it's going to swell back up but um hog need to be kept clean and they need to be fed more frequently than a king snake. You can't go every seven days with the hog nose. That's me personally. I like to do every three to four, and I like to do smaller meals. And, uh, I, I mean, you have hogs. So you might go every seven days. But and I also break it up, too. I do some crazy stuff with feeding, and I tell people this all the time. I'll feed, like, you know, once every five days for three weeks, and then I'll feed every third day for 10 days and then i'll take a 10 day off and then i'll start feeding again and i'm telling you these snakes grow bigger and faster and stronger than somebody that does every seven days you got to play with that metabolism it's just something i've kind of started doing just to to see where it goes and hognose really benefit from that
0: yeah no there's there's some truth there's actually science backing that there was a really cool really yeah there's a really cool study (laughs) my
2: my study that so that's interesting
0: once again the indigo snakes this was done in the zoo world but they um i'm trying to figure out a way to get the indigos that they were releasing to a certain size by a certain time point because whether we like it or not you know when you're raising animals for release you're you're you get a batch you want to get them to a certain size and out the door so you can get another batch because time is money and money is time kind of thing. And sure. they did this cool study where they did like one rodent every seven days, which is what we oftentimes do. And then they did same rodent, but they chip, they change it up. Like rodent, they give it a, after three days and they give it after seven days and they give another one two days, which is kind of like a foraging snake in nature. And then it's they did exactly. another thing exactly. where they did... Rodent, chick, rodent, chick. And the thing that caused the best growth was rodent, chick, rodent, chick, sporadically. Because And that makes sense because you're given different macromolecules and different – like a, a bird is made up of different proteins than a rodent, and it's made up of the same proteins at the same time. Um, but, no, I just stumbled onto that, like, in the past month and thought, holy hell, like, this might be what I do now. Um, so, no, well, I've been net. doing it
2: for three years. I kid you yeah. not. I, and I got people I can that can back it because I tell them that, and they kind of look at me like, yeah, that's not, you know, they need to be on a <laughs> schedule. Mm-hmm. But I, I love it. I mean, I, yeah. I, Dylan of D's Balls and Exotics, he's one of my good buddies. He's three hours north of me, two hours north of me. I, I mean, when he started buying my King Snakes, I told him, you got to do it like this, and he was kind of like perplexed by it. And I said, you don't look back on it. You'll you'll appreciate it. Different sizes, different times, long periods off, frequent feedings for long or short periods and just be crazy with it, you know. And I watch my snakes just flourish.
0: Yeah. Well, my false water cobras, I've got those two enormous breeders that are over eight feet. And I haven't gotten anything close to that. Um, I've got six-footers, but I don't have those big monsters. And I went back. I took notes on everything. And sure enough, when you look at the feeding rates, I was feeding those females, chicks, quail, rats, and mice sporadically. Uh, And and I went to a, like, primarily rodent diet, like, every – I think it was Monday, Thursday when they were growing. And the sporadic multiple items diet led to those big, healthy beasts and the – Methodical diet didn't. So
2: 100% agree with it because my driving force behind this was um, I found this rubber boa and I flipped this piece of siding or whatever. And there was a, it was in Kalama, Washington. It's was this rubber boa under it. And there's a nest with like 10 mice in it. And the adults are in there and it's hanging out under there. And I came back three days later and I opened that. Looked under it again. There's a snake. There's three less mice, <laughs> and the snake's still laying there. And I came back two days later, and the mice were all gone, and the snake's still <laughs> laying there. Yeah. And uh, a month later, that snake was still under that board, and there was no mice. It ate all those in five days, and a month, and for a month it hadn't moved. As far as my opinion goes, or what I saw, and you know, now it's going to go find another. 10 baby mice to eat in a row, you know, over a five-day period. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I kind of saw that, I thought, you know, these things eating on a schedule, that's not just – it's not the way they're going to do it in the <laughs> wild. And most tanks are producing by their second year in the wild, from what I've determined, from what I can see, you know. And uh, especially the Hog nose, hog nose yeah. in the wild, from what I've seen like, videos and stuff, I try to get them to 175 grams, but I've seen people – Uh, Taking pictures of gravid hognose that that look like they're maybe 140 grams or even
0: smaller. So, yeah, no. So then on and and sometimes even
1: you know getting animals back to feeding. You know, people are frustrated when you know adult animals aren't taking medium or adult sized mice. But you know, oftentimes if you offer them pinkies or fuzzies, just smaller meals the animal will actually start back up on their feeding response too. Totally agree.
2: Yeah. I'm also a big, not, I'm not for the power feeding. I watched the K brothers. Most people don't know who those guys are years ago. And they did a video on frequent feeding. And that's part of what got me into the, how I do my It's frequent feeding over power feeding. So. Cool. With long periods of layoff, but.
0: So, with the hogs, what are you feeding them? Uh, like have you ever had issues? Let's just start with neonates and work our way up. so um, yeah, I've been fortunate so, that I've not had issues, but some people have issues with certain morphs and bloodlines, whatever getting them to eat. Um, any tricks of the trade to get stubborn animals to eat that you may have?
2: Uh, well, I make sure I'm prepared before they start hatching because i don't want to be the guy looking for stuff. i tell you what hog nose prefer dead over live every 20th hog nose will only eat live but they definitely prefer dead over live um i don't brain pinkies i just go straight to tuna water and i just dip the muzzle of the mouse in it and i put it right underneath their nose and they sniff it and lick it and then they eat and then so out of the 20 you know 10 of them ate frozen thawed without ever no scent you, know, you got uh, seven of them on tuna water, one, one live, and you got the other two holdouts. And what I do is I go scoop some uh, tadpoles out of the lake through the butterfly net, and I freeze them for two weeks. And what I do is I get the little deli cup out, and tadpoles, I don't smash them or anything. I just leave them in there with the water and then freeze. And uh, I just take my mister, and I miss the top of the water because I don't wait for it to thaw. I want, you know, and then I just drag the pinky over top of that where it's wet now, and everybody eats. One time, only one time in six years of hognose I had to feed. I tried a toad. <laughs> I tried everything: Silverside, pinky, live, everything. This snake, I'm like, this thing's got folds on it. Like I tried quail egg. People think chicken egg. Quail egg works. Chicken egg doesn't, my opinion. And I threw a live tadpole. In that deli cup, and that thing hit that sucker so fast and so hard, <laughs> and uh, it's one of my breeders right now. It's a Conda Head Snow female, and she ate all but two of her eggs this year, and she was paired to a Super Yeti. So I think she consumed about fifteen thousand dollars worth of eggs. There, there you 10, go. And I got two to hatch, and both of them are Super Conda Albinos. So not even a super, not even a Conda Snow came out of this two. And that's another thing we should talk about. People with hognose, if you peek at your hognose while they're laying eggs, you just make yourself a bird, and the hognose knows that bird's going to eat those eggs. And who should have the nutrition, the bird or the snake? Starting depleted. Mm-hmm. They eat their eggs.
0: Well, yeah, I had one eating. I did that
2: twice this year. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, not last year I had one, and I caught it. I, I watched her lay the eggs. Came back like five hours later and was watching her eating the damn egg I watched her lay. I was like, what in the hell? And I knew they did that, but it's just kind of shocking to see it. <laughs> so yeah,
2: it's uh I only had an issue one time in the past and she was eating the infertiles. So I literally watched this hog nose eat the infertiles. She went to the fertils, kind of nudged them like she won't I think she was like checking. And then I took them, you know. But this year, so I get up at 6 a.m., 5 a.m., and I go to work at 8.30. Or I got to be there by at 30. I leave the house at 8. I'm checking for eggs, and these snakes are in the middle of laying. And you can either pull the tub out, and they see you look at the eggs. They're going to eat it. If you rob the clutch, like one, my biggest female, she probably had 14 eggs in her. She had laid nine. And I had already disturbed her. So I said, okay, I think these nine, those next 5 we're not going to be there when I get home. So I took the nine, came home at lunch, jammed home. She was full, full belly. She ate the five. <laughs> because, I mean, I took the nine. The bird came and took the eggs. It's going to come back. It's going to finish the job. I mean, that's really what they're thinking. That's it. And they're, and hognos of all species, you know as well as I do. They they look so depleted when they lay.
0: Oh, they look horrendous. Yeah. And you have
2: to feed them micro meals, basically. I mean, you got to... As, and, be, you know, before they're laying, I, I switch from small mice to fuzzies, and I try to go almost every other day, you know, just to get them, keep them well fed. But.
0: no, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So then brumation, what's, what's your strategy on that front? Do you oh. get them to, like, drop them all the way down to 50 or just turn off the heat and let them drop to whatever the room gets to? Or, or how do you go about that?
2: I keep my mails at the bottom of the racks because the garage gets about 54, 56 from October to, well, till April if I let it, but with the mini split, I crank that on in January. So, October, I shut off the heat panels. Uh, the mails are at the bottom, and the temperature down there, if the garage is 56, it's more like 51, 50. Yeah. And uh, that's it, man. I mean, I was just lucky with the Klubras in Washington State it's that easy for me. I mean, but just, what know.
1: about, uh, <laughs> relative humidity for your hop nose? Do you tend to keep them at a more humid environment during your brumation cycle or do anything special in that manner?
2: No, I would. So I was discussing this the other day with a friend with that amount of water cups mm-hmm. and then the, um, monitor cages. They're pretty tight, but you know, I'm constantly misting. Um the as warm as the the room is, with all those water cups, the humidities, you know, relative humidity in Washington State, I think excuse me, between fifty and maybe sixty five. I bet you my room is closer to not much more, but you can definitely feel the difference. And I also have live plants in my room. I love plants and cacti. So they kind of bring the humidity up, but I, I bet it's around seventy, and it's probably like that. And when it's colder, though, you know, like the humidity dries up with cold. But mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have any issues with bad sheds. That's for sure. Or or I mean, I you know they do seem to. You throw the moist cocoa in there; they really do like to dig through it and stuff. But I, I think humidity is definitely a, a benefit for them to a point. You don't want them at you know twenty percent. That's for sure
0: no yeah no so with with there's all these morphs and and that's the I mean i'm gearing up for the hognose book i've been reading my ass off for over the past year and it's funny because i'm doing all the natural history ecology nerdy academic stuff and i love that and i love the husbandry and i, I you know there's lots of different ways to keep hogs. And I, I like the fact that that, that, that like you were talking about, I actually like the hog no snake community. I like that there's naturalistic keeping, there's rat keeping, and, and there doesn't seem to be that whole, I'm going to burn your house down because you don't agree with me attitude, which is kind of nice. Um, but I've been researching all that. I'm not really a morph guy. I'm a locality guy. I'm not poo-pooing mm-hmm. morphs. I just don't know anything about them. And with hognose snakes, I, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to learn the morphs tonight." That was a funny, naive thought because there's so freaking many of them.
2: I feel so, like there's a lot of made up ones.
0: Yes, and there's there's a lot that I look at with a skeptical eye, and I'm going to leave it at that. Mm -hmm. um it kind of reminds me of the ball python world where there's like this yellow snake and this yellow snake and this yellow snake and i'm like they're all yellow snakes i don't understand what what makes them different and there's some of them though that i can like see them john barry's books really good at defining what the phenotypes are and all that kind of stuff but morph wise what are you keeping and why because there's so many there's uh, it would be I'm mean, certain somebody probably has all of them or close to yeah. all of them but there's literally hundreds of different morphs and then combination wise there's probably thousands of potential combinations if if you want to get technical But what, what do you go for as far as your so, morphs
2: <coughs> excuse me um, it seems like well I personally like the snows and people went so hard into Sable Yes, that snow got left behind, and then they went so hard into Arctic as well. Snow got mm-hmm. left behind, and the value of the snows went up, which is great. Like I say, the va- animals are more valuable. Unfortunately, with just the way we work as humans, you take care of what's valuable. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're not gonna you're not gonna lose a gold chain that's five grand, but you might forget, you know, where you put that stainless steel chain, you know, when you take yep. it off at of the pool. But anyway, so I, I love snow. And I love Conda. I don't actually like Super Conda as much as I love Conda. Yep. I like because Conda is never the same. You got some Condas that have perfect circles. You got them that have stripes and this, that, and the other. I got a lot of Toffee. I got Lemon. Cool. Ghost. I got a lot. I do have some Sable stuff, and I have a lot of Arctic stuff. And then I have, I should send you a picture of it. Yeah. Mitchell I mean. of Fathom Hog says the first one he's ever seen. It's, I hashed it here. It's a genetic striped hog nose. Oh, cool. It's a super condo with a perfect dark stripe. And uh, I'm raising that. And, and I kept a clutch made of it that had similar char- characteristics. So it'd be really cool if I can reproduce that. And then I have um, the dark. And I'm sure you've, you've heard, yeah. really seen me post it. Um, I believe there was only like four of them in the world. I think there's probably more now. John has one from Fathom. John and Mitchell are partners. He bred the male to three females. Mine's a female. And I bred an Arctic, Conda, Het, Sable, Possible, Het, Albino, and Toffee to it. I'm keeping the whole clutch back. They already hatched. That whole dark thing without the headband and mm-hmm. all that stuff didn't show up. But John bred his to some females, and I believe he had a couple pop out of there. So those females must have been from a you know, the lineage that he got the male from originally. So I think that's kind of fun, kind of different. Is it going yeah. to be like this $50,000 snake? Not Not even close. Is it the key to something different? You know, when you add, you know, it's a dark snake. It, it came out pitch black and it's now it's like gray with like a tan color it's really weird every time it shed it got lighter 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 but it's not arctic and it doesn't have the headband i saw that guy in europe calls he had some hatch last year and he called him Skullface. face but <laughs> i don't know if that's the same thing or not who knows you know
0: mm-hmm. but
2: I put all those eggs in that bucket. I'm gonna keep them going and I'm gonna work that that snake with that stripe. So
0: no, very cool. Yeah,
2: but I love snow. Snow's a big thing. And uh, I kind of cut back on the tricolors personally. They they weren't they weren't this is another one of those things where you know, I would rather look at my westerns than I than look at yeah. the tricolors. So I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna focus on my westerns.
0: No, I actually have so, two female tricolors from you.
2: Yeah, I that was our first deal, I think. Yeah,
0: I think it was. Um, yeah. My breeder literally bred herself to death. <laughs> she, you can't stop them. I could not get her to quit. And
2: I, and no, it that's makes, crazy. Yeah. I've lost. Yeah, it's, once they start, they can go up to six clutches. And you can feed them a small fuzzy every day, and they'll still kick over on that fourth, fifth, or sixth clutch. I mean. I know people put them in wine fridges to get them to stop, but they really don't cool like that. So, no, they're they're in the book
0: because they're, they're Z- I read some
2: natural history about them and I guess they live two to three years in the wild. They have one breeding season and they die.
0: Yeah. They're, they're a very different, totally different than our hog. They just look like it. And we, and we talked about this before when we had Kathy Love on. Um, yeah. But uh, no, the tricolors are, are a weird beast. So, i I, i've talked to a couple quite a few tricolor people now and when i had mine i just kind of went out early on way before i was thinking about getting a book i just thought they were super cool snakes from a natural history perspective biology perspective and i bought a male i bought a female bred them got all those eggs and then absolutely sucked at getting them to eat (laughs) i could not get them to eat um And then I listened to you, actually, Shane, when you were on From the Ground Up, and you're like, oh, yeah, I put them in a paper bag, tuna, water, and they all eat. I was like, what the hell am I doing wrong? And I've come to find out that there's some people that think that that might be like, there's a couple lines of of tricolors, and there's some lines that just seem to eat, and there's other lines that, no, I don't want to say they don't eat, because they obviously eat, but they don't eat as well. Do you have any thoughts on that and how did you get them uh, to eat because I'm, I'm gonna have every person we have on this podcast talk about tricolor hogs just for yeah indirect redemption for me talk about how the hell you get the damn things to eat
2: well my uncle earl went through the same thing as you he had three clutches not a single baby ate a guy at the show two weeks ago told me he's an old-time guy he said you got all these tricolors of are hatching a single one to eat lost them all i don't know that i said tuna water what i what i learned from a guy was fish guts
0: fish guts just
2: fish guts and uh, don't have to be in a brown paper bag you can just throw it in the cage literally they will not turn down fish guts and you don't have to rip the gut open you can literally fillet a fish and put the guts in a bag never thought Open it up, take the pinky, and swipe it on the inside and throw it in there. It'll be gone the next day. And the craziest thing is 99% of the hognose will eat frozen thawed the very next time without the salmon smell. Or the fish smell. It could be carp. It could be a trout. It could be a salmon. That iron blood smell. Mm-hmm. One time. And then they're on unscented frozen thawed. It's like the craziest thing.
0: Okay, let's define guts. <laughs> because... So okay. you literally take a you got a whole fish, you cut open its abdomen, rip out guts. That's the guts.
2: Yeah, just kind of you know, just like when you're cleaning trout, swipe it yeah. out, and put it in a bag and freeze it. Yep.
0: All right. Well, but it's not
2: really the guts as much as it's that you know, like the, the blood, the iron, yeah. uh-huh. that smell. And uh, like I said, I don't even thought you're literally dragging uh pinky across those crystals in the plastic bag. Yeah. You know, like the, and it's incredible. Like, I mean, they just hammer that
0: stuff. Alright. So I'm doing it.
2: Yeah, you'll you'll have a lot of success with it. You'll be you'll be like, wow. But my adults, you know, half of them well, I don't have any adults right now. I've got juveniles. Half of them come flying out of the cage with their mouth oh, yeah. open, like half my Westerns. And the other half you can chase them with the mouse, and then I can eat it. But you throw it in there and walk away. Boom, gone.
0: Yeah. D- did you experience? And Matt has Matt's kept these guys as well, so he can.
1: Yeah, as well. I'm actually waiting for a clutch to hatch here pretty yeah, soon, no. anyways. Too.
0: <laughs> well, go fishing and get a trout. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um. Uh.
0: Did you experience with the males that they go on? A, did any of your males go on hunger strikes? I had males that no, would eat every time no, and I had other males that were like, no, and then when they would eat, they were freaking psychotic. Like they normally, my tricolors, like you said, every tricolor I've ever had did that. You open the tub, they come raging out, Um, except for these damn males. And I, I think it has to deal with our weather here. I, I think there's some kind of cue they're picking up um after learning about where they live because where they live they get boom bust rain so there's like no rain at all and then there's rain um and here in where i'm at in appalachia we get like no rain and then a low pressure system comes in and we get destroyed this time of year and this was the time of year that my boys would just be weird um i don't know there's anything to that but that's just my theory on it but anyway i i
2: I mean i don't doubt it i tell you what um there's a guy on instagram his name's glenn his company is slithers he's in he's in canada he keeps his on aspen and his his triclairs look gorgeous amazing i keep mine on aspen for a week they look like dry jerky (laughs) i have to keep mine on either a cocoa cypress Mm -hmm. uh you know mix and his his look extreme just beautiful but I, he must they must have a decent amount of humidity in their their reptile room
0: mm-hmm.
2: or I don't know what it is but uh yeah he uses sandy chips and his look great I put mine on sandy chips they can't shed <laughs> and they like they like stiff you know and I just put them in a cup with paper towel and then they shed and they look great but um I don't know I think humidity is Definitely. I tell people all the time, everybody wants a uh, bioactive cage, the Exoterra with the little bugs and the live plants. I tell people you want the best snake for a bioactive, it's a tricolor hognose. You put a plant light on that, (laughs) live plants, Mm -hmm. sand soil, that that plant light's going to keep the cage at 80. Tricolors do great at ambient 80. I mean, it's amazing. And that plant light is going to feed those plants and keep that cage at 80. And you can never find that snake until it wants to found to <laughs> throw a mouse in there and it's gonna eat it every night yep. I mean and they burrow and they they, just, they are the best bioactive snake period
0: I agree with that definitely
2: I think they're excellent I, I, I know a friend that keeps her westerns that way and her westerns are amazing me personally I, I don't know how I could do it and do it as, like she does she she, she definitely uh, spends a lot of time daily maintaining it but mm-hmm. westerns I, I personally believe they don't do so well in bioactives but she's proven mm-hmm. me wrong on, on that that aspect because hers are beautiful yeah but i don't think i could pull it off
0: now that, that's one of the things i'm doing right now um for fun is and it's for the book the, the next book is i've got a bunch of pvc enclosures here at my house and um i went out to kansas and literally went all over Western Hognose Snake heaven and got all kinds of environmental data and brought and looked at the soil where they were common and where they weren't common. And one of the things I thought I found was that they really, really are sand specialists, even more so than the Eastern hogs. The Eastern hogs are like in a kind of a loamy soil, but Nasekis, the Westerns were like where you found them, there was sand where you didn't find them. There was no sand. Um, and I get I, well, that's I, interesting because yeah.
2: sand holds humidity yeah. deeper. So it, it does,
0: but that first, <laughs> like, if you've got a foot of sand, um, the first six inches is going to be wet after it rains. But within a day, that top layer is not going to have it and have the moisture. It's going to bake away. And then the, but the deeper parts going to have it. So they can, they actually have a natural gradient of humidity so they can go to where they want. You know, one or two days after a big rain event, um, and <clears throat> I set them up with this kind of weird sand, and it's been. Now, granted, they do exactly what the tricolor hogs do. You don't see them; they burrow, and they're down there. And that's what all the natural history says for plains hognose snakes: is that they're going to be under the ground. Um, but it's still a lot of it's. It's actually like keeping the dune the the worms from dune those sand worms because you like. Look in the cage when the lights come on. You can see them moving under the sand. It's actually cool shit. Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. Um. So yeah. So any any other aspects of hognose snake care that like there's, is is there any quirk about them that just kind of separates them and makes you like them? I mean, you, you mentioned you like keeled scales. You can't get any better than a. Yeah plains hog yeah with that. it's the
2: killed scales. <laughs> killed scales the face i don't think it looks cute i think it looks tough personally i just yeah. got a cool look to it um i'll tell you what my first ever hog nose. me and i mean most people like down, michael down in socal you know he had 10 friends in high school that were into reptiles
0: mm-hmm.
2: i had one friend and you know <laughs> we were one friend in washington and uh our parents, you know, we were we were pretty well behaved kids. The parents would let us jump in my Ford Explorer. We put the back seat down and we roll our sleeping bags. We would drive to the reptile show when I had a license, sixteen years old, drive four mm-hmm. hours down South Oregon, and uh, I went down there for some rosy boas because I always had a thing for them. And he talked me into we'd sleep in the Walmart parking lot, be first in line, five in the morning because then I mean, people line up. Mm-hmm. Super committed. Anyway, uh, he talked me into these hog nose, and I remember looking at him at 16 years old down there, thinking these things don't look like they've ever eaten. They had that kind of <laughs> drapey skin look to them. Mm-hmm. And he's, on oh, the guy's like, "Oh yeah, they'll eat just fine, you know." And <laughs> we never got those damn things to eat, mm-hmm. but it sucks though because I mean, I mean, I think it was AOL back then, but I mean now all you got to do is ask your phone, and you know you can find. Hundred different people saying, you know, try this, try that, try this, try that, or, yeah. or whatever. But I mean, when I got them in, I liked them, but I didn't want them because I thought they looked like right out of the egg, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so maybe that, like, what well, I guess what I was getting at, maybe that kind of did something to the thought process of because I failed with those at such a young age when reptiles have always been such a thing for me that when I came back around, after the rosies, the rosie boa mm-hmm. collection, I kind of wanted to right a wrong in my mind, like yep. just care for them, then let alone all of a sudden they're breeding them and then getting all these babies to eat. But I mean, I'm definitely that person. If I, I definitely want to be able to say just to myself, like I did it, you know, it's kind of funny. I know people are probably super proud of you know everything they do. I don't keep a single picture of any reptiles in my phone. I post it on Instagram and I delete it. If my Instagram got deleted tomorrow, I'd have no evidence of anything I ever produced. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's my album. I uh-huh. should probably back that up. You can back it up now. You can request yeah. and I can back it up. But And I have, you know, my Instagram says I have 240 posts. I have more, more like 2,000. I archive stuff often because I'll mm-hmm. take pictures that aren't to appealing to people like it's not really a cute picture or a nice picture. It doesn't get enough likes or whatever. I'll just archive it. But I keep everything in Instagram and Instagram's known for deleting everybody. So I, I probably should change my ways, but uh, yeah, I, 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 mean, I've got a lot of pictures from the very beginning on, on a oh, like one of those portable hard drives, but anything in the last four years is on Instagram and that's it. So I got to, now that I think about it, I really need to do something about that. But uh, you said, "Oh my God!" But you're a different kind of guy. You're, yeah, you're doctor. Your doctor's You got to keep all. You keep all that stuff. I'm sure you got books and stuff. You wrote your notes in.
0: Yeah, no, they're all in my phone, Shane. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, I'm just some dude, man. I told you guys, no, don't use any scientific names. When I'm getting off the call. <laughs> oh no, no, we're good, we're good. <laughs> is- no, no, I'm just saying that's yep. me, like i'm just a guy doing this like i'm not you know for whatever reason it really works for me but i'm I'm not i'm not that that i don't know i guess i do my own research like we were talking about you know, the feeding and stuff and and and, you know i tried to breed certain stuff and and wasn't capable of breeding it based off you know google how to breed this and i always tell people it's like uh you can google how to do jujitsu but they're always going to leave the last step before the final out, you know, you got to learn it from the Gracies. You can Google how to breed something and they'll, it'll pop up there. Reptile magazine article from 1997. You know, will tell you how to breed. But what I did was when I had trouble, I threw all that away. And what I did is, okay, I'm going to look up the natural geographic location of this animal. And I'm going to look up the weather patterns for 365 days a year temperature drops for night, temperature drops for day. That's kind of how I did the the, the uh, Cribos. I didn't want to Google how to do it. I just did my own research. Like, you know, you could, Cribos never go below 80 during the day for 365 days a year. But mm-hmm. for two months of that year, their nighttime tip drops into the 60s, three months of that year. You wouldn't know that unless you looked it up. Yep.
1: No, that's Yeah, I mean that's that's like the best part of the hobby. I mean, Absolutely. It's really kind of taking all that natural history aspect and really kind of painting a complete picture of and I mean that's you know, we've had some people on the show that have really kind of detailed, you know, one of the most important parts is kind of taking that information and observing your animals and, you know, making judgment calls based on some of those aspects.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just out of frustration, just said I'm throwing everything out and kind of starting over and just looking up myself. So and it, it paid off. Paid
0: dividends. <laughs> no, I did the same thing. I I got false water cobras here at the house, and I got the I have them up at the university. The animals at the university eat like clockwork every time, and there's just. There's weird juju here, and my animals would go off food. And then I I, I did what you did. I, like, deep dive, weather spark. It's like, I got to figure out what the hell's going on and here. They were getting too cold at night. It turns out, like, night drops are super important to them. So I warmed them back up, and sure enough, start eating again. So, but it, that took me, like, a year to figure out.
2: <laughs> so, Excuse me. Yeah. Anyway. That's definitely how those tropical species learn their winter times for sure. Yeah. Cuz at you know during the 9 months of the year the night drop could be 2 degrees, maybe 4, but in their winter cycle it's more like 10 to 15 or even 20. Yep. So All righty. Oh, hey! Real quick before we before we end this, I don't know if that's where you're headed. I did leave a species off that I invested in. I did get the Costa Rican black milks this last year.
0: Oh, nice! So there's another
2: uh, colubrid species that I, I don't ever see myself not working with. I'm really really enjoying them.
0: No, I, I've I've had we have those at the school. We've had them forever. We haven't bred them yet. Um, funny story about those. I got two point two, and then they got old enough to breed. And it turns out I had zero point four. <laughs> so oh, that's a good problem. To yeah, have. So it was like, all right, yay, son of a bitch! <laughs> like that was the way that thought process went. <laughs>
2: so I got two males and two females. Yep, that's how I do it now. I used to be one to
0: three or whatever. But you lose your male, then you're done, yeah. so. Yep. So we're raising yeah. I males always right try
1: now. to do three point two. That's always my flavor because you just don't know because you could even that's not lose a bad way to go. No. yeah
2: no it's really not that's the young part of the hobby the, the young person in the hobby that you learn 1.3 is what i'm buying i'm gonna start this project Then you're better off with of two two three two three four three five yeah. four four you know like just like not holding animals back like that would you know Oh yeah, It's crazy. You don't realize that. Or buying adults. Just buy the babies. Get to know the snake. Enjoy enjoy, enjoy the, the process of raising and letting the, the project come into fruition.
0: Yep, yep. All right, man. Well, you keep enough stuff that we are absolutely going to do Shane 2.0. <laughs> that's, yeah. that, that's happening.
2: I'll um, work on my internet connection for the next one. Oh, time. that's all good.
0: <laughs> we figured it out. Um... So if if people want to find you, you're definitely on social media. So where do you recommend people go to to find you, reach out, interested in a snake from you?
2: You can only find me at one place, Evergreen State Reptiles on Instagram. And if you don't have an Instagram, you can still Google Evergreen State Reptiles on Instagram and click the email tab, and you can send me an email. I used to do Facebook. My Facebook business page is still up. It's got – 5,000 followers. So I just couldn't delete it. I put it in my friend's name and he's sitting on it for the last three years and it's just there. (laughs) But I got rid of my personal Facebook. You can't have a business Facebook without a personal. And I really can't stand that platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instagram is great because you do you and that's it. People want to follow. They do. And if they don't, they don't. But, um, yeah, I mean, I do have a morph market. I put one animal a year on there. I'm not (laughs) sure why I have it. Um, I I haven't posted on fauna, but I shop fauna. But I I post a lot of stuff available in my stories on Instagram, and it goes quick, which is pretty cool because that's kind of like homegrown. You know, like yeah. I started that with one follower, and now I got thirteen thousand or almost. And those people, you know, I post it in a story, DM available, and or I post a clutch hatching, and next thing you know, I got a list of four or five people. Nice. It works well. well.
0: Yeah. Well, keep it simple. Um, uh, I, I was telling my students last week the whole philosophy <coughs> behind KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. That you can't you can keep it simple like that, it's just gonna work. You know, that, that yeah, that's just all there's yeah. to do it. So okay. Well, this was fun. Enjoyed the talk. This is a good one. Lots of I, I like the episodes we have where we talk about freaking dry markin' and hognose snakes. Like those you can't get any, you know, there's a lot of diversity just there. Um, so that's yeah. that's
2: bad. Yeah. Uh, it's a um, broad broad deal deal there.
0: Yeah. So thanks for coming on with us. Um, if you want to find me, uh go to Instagram, Dr. Crawdad there. I do find myself hanging out there more than Facebook uh past couple months. Um, it's just simpler and less infuriating. I'm learning that. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I'm also on Facebook cause I'm old AF, so you can go there too and, and find me. And then students, I say this every freaking episode, um, you want to work with snakes and get a master's degree for crying out loud, reach out and contact me. Uh, we have a graduate assistant in our zoology major open. Um, so, and I've got herpetoculture projects floating around my brain that I need a student to do. I just spent two weeks in Costa Rica, and we're going to start looking at outdoor enclosures and testing, like, do snakes need UVB and doing it the right way, and it might involve a trip to Costa Rica. So might not, not promising that, but that's on the horizon. So um, anybody that's young or old wants to do a master's degree, hit me up, uh, because we have opportunities sitting
1: there. So that's where you can find me. Where can people find you, Matt? Uh, You can find me on Facebook or Instagram with Sarpa Mitra. There you go.
0: So this was a fun one. Uh, Thank you all for listening and making it to this point. And we look forward to recording another episode for you in the future. And please keep listening to Glubert and Gluberoid Radio. Thank you all. Have a great one.